time for our regular segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. I'm reading this, and I'm wondering if it's a typo, but the term prohibited bird seems to be in the title of one of our stories today. Is that correct? That is correct. And I must say, it's one of those uh, decisions, and I read quite a few every week to try to come up with things that might be uh, interesting and informative. Um, And it's a decision uh, out of Vancouver, uh, and a decision by a judicial justice in the bylaw division of the provincial court. Um, the uh, the justice's uh, name is uh, uh, Markdom, uh, and I must say it's one of those uh, decisions which uh, causes uh, at least caused me uh, to sort of smile with pleasure in terms of the uh, little bit of justice uh, uh, in this uh, case and the just very sensitive way in which it was decided, uh, which is why I thought people would be interested in it and. The case involves a woman living in Vancouver uh, who uh, was originally from uh, Jamaica, uh, and uh, she had, uh, uh, she was keeping uh, two guinea fowl hens uh, in uh, her backyard. Uh, and uh, the place where they were kept was described in the decision uh, as uh, an exceptional sanctuary. Uh, It was described as an excellent coop, clean, airy, bright, with fresh water and food. Probably the sort of thing which would rent out, given the uh, shortage of housing these days, to somebody other than guinea fowl. But um, anyways, it uh, it sounds like a very nice place she was keeping them. Somebody complained about the guinea fowl, which prompted uh, a uh, bylaw person from the city of Vancouver to show up. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, issue her uh, order for the removal of the guinea fowl and a ticket. Uh, and the, the ticket was for harboring a, harboring prohibited birds. <laughs> and so that's the case that wound up in court. Uh, and the issue in court didn't wasn't whether she was in fact keeping these birds in the fine uh, coop in the backyard. She acknowledged that was so. The issue involved how is the bylaw to be interpreted. And the way it works with uh, cities and municipalities is that there's power delegated by the province to them to pass laws in certain areas. Vancouver is sort of unique in the province in that we have a thing called the Vancouver Charter, uh, which is different from the basis that uh, authority is delegated to other municipalities. But Hmm. it's clear the city of Vancouver has authority to uh, create bylaws, quote, respecting impoundment and keeping of animals and keeping of birds within the jurisdiction of the city. So that part's fine. And indeed, there is a bylaw that restricts a person from doing various things pursuant to that power. And the bylaw uh, prohibits people from keeping it in any area temporarily or permanently, uh, and then it lists a whole bunch of things. Horses, donkeys, cattle, swine, sheep, ducks, geese, turkeys, pheasants, quail, or other poultry or fowl. And then it provides some exceptions. For example, there's a specific regulation allowing you to keep hens, a certain number of them. Yes. Uh, you can also have these things if you have a licensed pet shop or a slaughterhouse. It's the opposite of a pet shop, I guess. Um, and so that's what the bylaw said. And so the city viewed it as, well, this is all very straightforward. She's got these guinea fowl. Uh, we say these are fowl. <laughs> poultry or fowl is right in the name. Um, And so the justice had to determine whether this woman was uh, violating that particular bylaw. 
which required an issue of statutory interpretation. Uh, because the the woman who had these uh, two guinea fowl, which the evidence was she raised uh, by hand uh, to keep as uh, companions, as pets, um, and uh, in that uh, to that extent, uh, she gave uh, evidence about uh, about them. Um, they are birds which are endemic to Africa. Uh, they have been domesticated for various purposes. They're apparently excellent for protecting crops. Some farmers use them because they love eating ticks and scare away foxes and snakes. Interesting. Uh, they're also, on her evidence, uh, not very good at laying eggs, and their meat is gamey and tough. Uh, so they're not birds which people would keep to eat. Uh, and so her evidence amounted to these were my hand-raised pets, hmm. not uh, something for the purpose of laying eggs or for meat. Uh, but that still left the bylaw that says that fowl are one of the long list of things that are prohibited. Uh, the judicial justice, in trying to interpret what fowl meant, uh, looked at uh, other uh, language in the same bylaw, which, for example, uh, places limits on the number of various other things, types of birds you are allowed to keep in the city of Vancouver. It listed a number of things which you're allowed in the city of Vancouver to keep no more than 12 of, but you can certainly keep some of them, including homing pigeons, canaries, uh, budgies, parrots, parakeets, and exotic birds of all species. And so the legal issue had to become, well, what was meant by, as he described it, uh, the city fathers, (laughs) uh, in terms of this particular uh, bylaw? What was meant? Were these guinea fowl... um, poultry or fowl, as the name might suggest, uh, or were they something else? Like, for example, an exotic bird. Uh, and he gave praise for whoever drafted the bylaw, indicating that it was uh, sort of subtle and clear and, and so forth. Uh, and he concluded that the term poultry or fowl has a meaning uh, often used in the agro-business world uh, for things that are sort of kept for the purpose of meat or laying eggs. Uh, and so even though the guinea fowl has in its name fowl, uh, he found that because the city had in this other language uh, separated out something that you were allowed to keep, an exotic bird, uh, and because the evidence was that the guinea fowl uh, was not native to British Columbia, he concluded that the proper interpretation of uh, all of that uh, was that the guinea fowl was not in fact fowl, but rather an exotic bird. Uh, And for that reason, found that if the city had intended truly to prohibit somebody from keeping uh, guinea fowl as pets, they would have listed it along with that list of other things like, uh, uh, you know, whatever, horses and donkeys and cattle swine, and it hadn't. Uh, And so the net result is that the woman will be able to have back her two beloved guinea fowl uh, as pets to keep in their excellent enclosure. Uh, And I must say, as I read all of that, the, the decision itself was remarkable just in terms of its sort of sensitivity to all of the issues involved. And I thought it was just a, a little piece of uh, justice in terms of the outcome uh, for this woman who had raised these uh, two guinea fowl by hand uh, as her companions uh, in finding that uh, despite their name, they are not fowl. Uh, they are an exotic bird uh, and she is permitted to keep them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's something that brought a little bit of uh, a, a piece of justice smile to my, uh, to me when I read it. I thought uh, it's something people should know about. So that's the decision about the uh, keeping of guinea fowl in the city of Vancouver.
A finding of not guilty on a charge of harboring a prohibited bird. Fascinating. Next up, I'm reading a group of licensed cannabis retailers attempt to sue the province for failing to adequately enforce licensing requirements on reserves. And that last term, I suspect, complicates matters uh, significantly. Yes. So this was a claim brought by a whole collection of uh, cannabis retailers who are licensed uh, to sell cannabis in British Columbia. Uh, And the heart of their complaint uh, was that they said, look, the province of British Columbia uh, wasn't enforcing uh, the uh, restrictions on selling cannabis for people who were setting up cannabis retailers on uh, reserves. Uh, And uh, they pointed out that the Uh, This was going on and that the uh, act had uh, powers uh, that allow things like uh, provincial director can like enter and search premises uh, for marijuana if they believe that the people are selling it there, for example. Um, And the regulations are quite strictly enforced outside of uh, reserves. Uh, And so they claimed that uh, the failure to do that uh, on reserve was having a a serious financial impact on them, uh, and they claimed that they had collectively sustained damage in the, to the tune of $40 million uh, on the basis that people were purchasing marijuana from these retailers on reserve that weren't properly licensed and weren't subject to the same you know, tax and enforcement and so on regulations that would apply to them. Uh, and they founded their claim in, on two grounds. They first of all claimed that the province was negligent Hmm. or that they had engaged in what's referred to as negligent misrepresentation uh, to them when they signed up to get their licenses. They claimed that the province had uh, ensured them that there would be a, quote, viable retail cannabis industry in B.C. And they were asserting that uh, that wasn't the case, uh, in part because of the failure to enforce uh, the regulations on reserve. And All of that brought an application by the province to strike out this claim without even having a trial. And that the way that works is this. Um, If somebody sues you, right, or makes a claim like this, you can apply to have it struck out if you can uh, satisfy a judge that it's plain and obvious that if you assume all of the facts being alleged to be true, uh, there is no viable cause of action. And when you're suing somebody, you have to set out in writing, why are you suing them? Why do you say I owe you money, right? Yes. Um, and that gets served on the person, then that person would get it and be able to write down why they think uh, they don't owe money or they owe less, whatever it might be. They would file that and give it to the other person. And those documents sort of establish, well, what is this claim about, right? So you sort of know what you're going to court for, and it's not a magical mystery tour. Um, and the way the application to strike out a pleading works is if you say, look, if you just assume everything you're claiming happened, right? There's no dispute about any of it. I agree with all of the things you're saying I did. Mm-hmm. Um, if a judge can be persuaded that um, even if everything you claim happened did happen, uh, you couldn't win, uh, then the claim can be struck out without having a trial. Because mm-hmm. what's the point having a trial to prove various things, which even if they, you did prove them all, would not be a basis to sue someone. Mm-hmm. And here, the issue turned on whether the province of British Columbia owed a duty of care to this bunch of cannabis retailers. Hmm. Uh, because when you're suing somebody claiming that you know they were negligent or careless and that caused you harm, one of the very first things that you need to prove is that the person you're suing 
owed you some duty to be careful, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, for let's say, for example, in a car scenario, a car accident. Well, it's pretty clear that when you're driving down the road, you've got a duty to be careful not to run into other people. You have a duty of care to the person in front of you not to crash into them from behind. Or I guess at least you did before no fault came into British Columbia. Now it's uh, nobody's fault. Uh, but it can become a bit more challenging when it's, well, what is the relationship between the province of British Columbia and do they have to be careful to these cannabis retailers. Um, and the legal test there is there's got to be, sometimes it's referred to as sort of a proximity analysis. Like, is there a close and direct relationship between these people, right? Um, or is this just so remote that you don't really owe any duty of care to that other person that you're trying to sue? And the judge concluded, and this isn't novel, that you generally don't have that kind of province or government doesn't generally have that duty of care to people in some private way for failing to do things. Uh, and they found, of course, that the power to uh, investigate people and uh, you know find them or seize their marijuana, things like that, were discretionary. The legislation doesn't say uh, the provincial director must go into any place where they believe there's cannabis. It just says they may do that. Um, and so because there was no legal obligation to do anything, uh, and because the relationship between not doing that on reserve was just too remote from, you know, the interests of the other people who had cannabis shops, uh, the conclusion was that there just is no duty of care owed in that regard. Hmm. Um, and so because there's no duty of care, the claim could not succeed. And I should say it's a different analysis if the government decides to do something and then does it badly. Like, for example, this comes up in the, like this, you know, slippery road or yes, snow accident yeah. cases, right? Yeah. If a municipality says we have decided to clear that road, <laughs> right? We have a or you know, there's a, that decision is made and then it's done poorly or inadequately, leaving icy patches. Well, there could be a claim there if you slip and fall down on one. But if a government just says we're not cleaning the roads off this year. We're out of money. No road cleaning for anyone. Then you don't have a claim on the basis that it would have really been helpful had you cleaned the roads. They wouldn't have slipped. Uh, that's that's how it's analyzed from the perspective of suing the government for, hey, you should have done something to help out here. It's a different thing when they decide to help out and do so poorly or inadequately. Uh, but if they simply decide not to, you aren't generally going to have a claim to say, hey, you should have done this thing, which would have been helpful to me. And so in this case, the province was successful in getting this claim made by all of these retailers struck out on the basis that they just didn't owe them a duty to do what they were asking for. It might have been helpful for them. It might have been fair, right, if you say we're going to enforce this everywhere. But that doesn't create a basis to sue someone. Uh, and so the net result is that uh, the uh, old collection of uh, BC cannabis retailers uh, have had their claims struck out and costs ordered against them. Uh, and so that's how it works in terms of duty of care and an application to get something uh, struck out uh, if it doesn't have any hope of succeeding. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking. I think this is a great time for our break. We'll be back right after this. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX. Michael, our third story also has to do with Indigenous rights issues coinciding with, I'm reading, establishing a marijuana dispensary operating on a reserve. 
Yes, indeed. And I thought it tied in neatly with the last case discussed, and it was a decision released the very same day as the decision we just talked about, finding that the cannabis retailers could not sue the province of British Columbia uh, for failing to enforce regulations on reserves. This case, which came out the very same day, uh, involved a man uh, who uh, lived on the uh, Squamish Nation um, and on reserve, uh, and the band there was applying to have him ejected, uh, essentially, uh, for uh, alleged violations of their housing policy, including number one being allegedly establishing a marijuana dispensary operating on the reserve. Now, the reserve had, or the band had a number of other uh, uh, complaints about uh, the uh, man's uh, home and property, uh, including uh, allegedly constructing an outbuilding that came six feet off the property, collecting junk, partying, drug use, individuals staying in the garage and trailer, a whole list of things. But number one was allegedly operating this marijuana dispensary. And one of the things which uh, I think it's an application in court because the man didn't want to leave and wouldn't leave, and so eventually the band was uh, applying for a court order that he get out. Um, And the case raises, I think, some interesting issues that uh, surrounding property ownership on reserves and who owns something, right? Hmm. You know, and it's something which off reserve, we all kind of take for granted. Something you can buy your home uh, or property and that's yours, right? That has a number of rights associated with it. One of the things, uh, the way the Indian Act uh, operates, however, is that individuals on a reserve don't actually own the land where their house sits. Hmm. Um uh, they can, under the Act, there's a provision whereby land can be um, uh, sort of allocated to somebody uh, by the band, and then it has to be sort of approved of by the minister. But apparently that is not routinely used. And instead, uh, many bands just have a sort of even more informal process where they give somebody permission to construct a home somewhere. Now, the uh, origin of that, I think, was a now really outdated idea that somehow people are going to be swindled out of their property, sort of a, an outrageous idea, uh, particularly now. It's hard to believe, in fact, we have something called the Indian Act still in Canada. Indeed. Uh, but a- as a result of uh, this scheme or this system, which is still in place, is that people who live on a reserve and have a home don't really own it. Um, and that has a whole host of implications, regardless of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea that somebody who's partying and running a marijuana dispensary should stop doing those things, right? I think most people would say, yes, you should definitely stop doing those things, just like a municipality would enforce uh, zoning and bylaws if you set up a business in your home selling marijuana and you had you know garbage collecting in your yard, you're going to start getting tickets and orders and various things to stop doing that. But what wouldn't happen to you is you wouldn't lose your home, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and that has all kinds of knock-on implications, right? Because if people can't have some security and own their property, it means they can't do things like get a mortgage against the property, right? If you wanted to you know, build a new home on it, right? Or if somebody wanted to borrow money to start a business or do various other things, right? Because if you don't own it, you can't really get a much of a mortgage against it because what is the bank going to take as security, right? So it has all of these really, I think, long-term negative implications for people uh, when you don't own where you live and you can't really own where you live 
if your home is on a reserve. And so I think we should in the should give some serious thought to, first of all, should we continue to have an Indian Act? Is that really appropriate? And it, to the extent there is some legislation like that, um, is it uh, appropriate that people are going to be in a position where they don't own their property? Uh, and, you know, that was something from this sort of really outdated nature, uh, sort of uh, expectations about what people might do with it if they own their property. Um, and so here, given uh, how that scheme works and still works, um, the analysis by the court was sort of, well, okay, does the... Um, does the band and council have authority to uh, evict this man? Uh, and then is he entitled to any compensation for the home that's on the property? And he was claiming, well, hold on, if you're evicting me, which you shouldn't be able to do, he says, I've stopped doing all the problematic things. Should I get some compensation for the house? Uh, and so there was differing evidence about how much the house cost to build. It was built back in 2001. Uh, and the man's evidence and the band's evidence about what it cost to build and who paid how much and so on differed. Uh, ultimately, the judge uh, accepted the evidence of the band over the evidence of the man who built the house. Uh, but leaving aside the disagreement about how much the house cost and you know how much the man contributed to it and, and so forth, um, the fundamental problem was that because this home was, he only had it there pursuant to this allocation by the band. It wasn't even registered in the way that you could under the Indian Act have the band assign it and then the minister approve it and then you get some I guess, sort of a, some certificate that gives you some possessory rights to the property because he was just had this sort of allocation by the band. Uh, it meant that you know, regardless of how much you think the house is worth and whether you think he contributed 10000 or 50000 to this house, he wound up with nothing. Uh, and so the uh, order, you know, it's not a surprising order when you sort of follow the legal principles there. There's no apparent error in terms of what the judge uh, did. He's supplying the judge, and he or she is applying the principles set out in the Indian Act. Uh, I guess the question I would raise for people to think about is, should we have that scheme? Should we have a scheme where there are a very large number of people who are living in homes which they may have paid for or built, um, or at least attributed to those things that don't really own them. And just think about what that would mean to you if you're living off a reserve, if you didn't own the land on which your home was built and you couldn't own it. And think of all the limitations that would place on you. And think about the other implications of that, you know, in terms of, you know, concerns about things like care and maintenance for a home. There's evidence here about uh, frequent, you know, uh, deferred maintenance in homes on reserves. And no doubt that's true. Uh, but, um, you know, what uh, degree of motivation would somebody have to spend money maintaining property which is not theirs um, and, and can't be theirs? You know, I, I rather suspect it's sort of like the amount of care and maintenance you would do on a rental car that you've got for a period of time, which is say, probably not much. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the outcome. Uh, it's, the, uh, re it's the band responding to exactly the issue which was raised by the cannabis retailers along with others. Uh, and that's the outcome. The uh, the man is uh, being ordered to vacate, uh, and uh, he will receive no compensation uh, for the uh, value of the home that he's been required to leave behind.
Uh, and that's the uh, that's the scheme we've got in Canada. And so I think we ought to give some political consideration to whether that uh, should continue to be so or not uh, in 2023. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Events Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day.